On the sheets you were handed when you came in, selections from the book of Proverbs. But first, please pray with me. Thank you for giving us your word, O Lord. Now we ask you to prepare our hearts to accept your word as it is brought to us by Pastor Jim. Strengthen and empower him as he preaches. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have joy. Do not those who plot evil go astray? But those who plan what is good find love and faithfulness. Mockers resent correction, so they avoid the wise. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. To humans belong the plans of the heart. But from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Plans are established by seeking advice, so if you wage war, obtain guidance. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. This is the word of the Lord. Are you all familiar with the, the term FOMO? Uh, it's an acronym you know, for uh, fear of missing out. Uh, this uh, term was coined in 2004 
uh, to describe the anxiety you feel on a Friday night that someone may be having more fun than you, uh, especially as you scroll through uh, Facebook or, or Instagram. Well, this week, the New York Times ran an interview with the man who created this term. His name is Patrick McGinnis, and he's recently added two new additional acronyms uh, to our lexicon. The first is FOBO, Fear of Better Options. FOBO is a sister to FOMO. It's the experience of flipping through the channels on TV or scrolling through shows on Netflix and never being able to settle on anything because you're afraid that there's a better option out there for you. Some of you know this experience, I know. You're looking for the perfect option, the perfect show to watch tonight. Well, McGinnis says that you can actually go a step further. Your phoba, your phobo can turn into foda. Foda is the fear of doing anything. You're, you're a deer in the headlights, and you're just paralyzed. So, so watch out. You don't want your foma turning into your phoba and then into foda. You know, it's amazing that more of us aren't just starving to death in front of the TV. This can be kind of silly, but, but Patrick McGinnis said in this interview that this, this idea of phobo actually says something significant about our character. Now, here's what he said. I see phobo as an affliction of affluence. In order to have phobo, you must, by definition, have options. It's a byproduct of a hyper-busy, hyper-connected world in which everything seems possible. And as a result, you are spoiled for choice. It's also driven by narcissism. People with FOBO put themselves and their needs and wants squarely around the people around them. All of the people who are adversely affected by their FOBO. Now, you know, this may seem kind of silly, when we're talking about Netflix and, and what to watch on TV. But what happens when we have a fear of better options uh, in our dating relationships? Or as we choose a major or, or a college? Or as we plan for retirement? What then? Well, today we're thinking about what the book of Proverbs uh, teaches us about making decisions like these and making them wisely. Over these past several weeks, uh, we've been studying what the Bible teaches about wisdom, and we talked about what wisdom is as a skill for living in relationship with God and, and others. Last week, we talked about wisdom and words, and now we want to consider this area of planning and, and decision-making. What does Proverbs teach us about this? Well, first... Proverbs teaches us that making decisions wisely is a skill. And we've seen this a few times in Proverbs. Chokmah, wisdom, is something very practical in the Bible. It's used to describe successful kings and skilled craftsmen. According to Proverbs, God has designed the world in such a way that you can discover the patterns that lead to success. It doesn't always work this way, and that's why we also have the books of Job and Ecclesiastes, and some other time we'll, we'll talk about those. But, but to some degree, you can learn how to go with the, the grain of the universe. 
And so biblical wisdom is rooted in the belief that there is a creator and that he reveals his ways to us. And folly is the opposite. The great German scholar of the wisdom literature in the Bible, Gerhard von Rad, described folly as practical atheism, living as if God did not exist. So what does Proverbs teach us about getting the skill of good decision-making? It tells us three things. You need a goal, you need a strategy, and you need an action plan. Let's look quickly at each one of these. So first, you need a goal. Proverbs assumes that we live in a moral universe. So it's not enough to just have any goal. You need a good goal. Proverbs 12.5. The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. 12.20. Deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have joy. 14.22. Do not those who plot evil go astray, but those who plan what is good find love and faithfulness. So our goal needs to be one of justice and peace and, and goodness. And this is very important because what we're aiming at affects who we are. I once read an interview with a college student who had just graduated, and she was asked, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently in the last four years? And I, I thought her reply was, was insightful. She said, I wish I'd partied less. People always say, be true to yourself. But that's misleading because there are two selves. There's your short-term self and there's your long-term self. And if you're only true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. Now, here's someone who has come to see that their goals and their decisions have had a profound impact impact on, on who they are and who they've become. So, so first point, do you have a goal? And, and, it is, and is it good? Second, you need a strategy for how you're going to reach your goal. Proverbs says that the key here is getting advice and, and counsel from others. 12.15, the, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. 15.22, uh, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. 2018, plans are established by seeking advice. So if you wage war, obtain guidance. Do you have a strategy for getting from where you are to where you want to be? Have you invited others into developing your strategy to, to help you see what you can't see on your own, to, to anticipate obstacles, to consider alternatives? So we've seen you need a goal, you need a strategy. Finally, do you have a plan for turning your strategy into action? What specific steps will you take to get from point A to point B? Proverbs says that success comes to those who work out a plan, step by step. 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. 24.27, put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. In other words, first things first. So you got it. Here's the skill of preparing to make a good decision. Get your goal right, get help with your strategy, and then work out your action plan. That's the skill 
involved in planning and making good decisions. Now, you can probably go down the street to the business school in Granger Hall and learn some of these principles. But that doesn't mean you will be wise. Wisdom, as we've seen, is more than a skill. It's also about relationships, about character, about the heart. There's nothing mechanical about wisdom. As Bruce Waltke says, Proverbs is not really a how-to book, but a how-to-be book. And this is why we've been saying that wisdom is not just following rules for life, nor is it following your heart. It's a confident trust in God that brings you skill, yes, but also makes you humble and able to take risks at the same time. One of my all-time favorite movies is uh, the 1967 classic, uh, Cool Hand Luke. Uh, In Cool Hand Luke, Paul Newman, before he was famous for salad dressings, stars as as Luke, uh, who's a war veteran who's sent to a, a Florida prison camp after a night of drunken carousing. And in prison he encounters a brutal prison warden who's just called the captain. And the movie is a showdown between Luke and the captain. And let me share just two scenes uh, from the movie that illustrate these characters, and then I'll explain what they have to do with wisdom. The the first is after Luke has been captured after one of his many escape attempts. And the next day, he's back on the chain gang, and the captain says to him, You're going to get used to wearing them chains after a while, Luke, but you're never going to stop listening to them clinking because they're going to remind you what I've been saying for your own good. And then Luke replies, I wish you'd stop being so good to me, Captain. And the captain smacks him and and knocks him down a hill, and, and he says, Don't you ever talk that way to me? Never. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach, so you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. And I don't like it any more than you men. This is the the captain's character. He's mean. He's insensitive. He requires uh, this arbitrary adherence to the rules. That's the first scene. And the second scene is at the very end of the movie. Actually, the last scene of the movie Uh, Luke is on the run after escaping uh, from prison again. And as the police are closing in on him, he finds himself in a church. And uh, in a church, he, he starts talking to God. And he says this. From here, it, it, it looks like you got things fixed. So I can never win out. Inside, outside, all them rules and regulations and bosses... You made me like I am. So just where am I supposed to fit in? I guess I'm, pretty du- I guess I'm pretty tough to deal with, huh? A hard case. Yeah, I guess I got to find my own way. And then the sheriffs and, and the captain arrive, and after Luke shouts at the captain, uh, he's shot, and he dies. And the movie ends. I think Luke and and the captain, 
illustrate the two options that our society usually gives us when it comes to wisdom. Either obey the rules, our, our social and, and our family traditions, and become like the captain or like one of his prisoners, or break the rules and go your own way like Luke. Either follow the rules or follow your heart. I want, I want to suggest that the Christian faith offers us a third way. Because Christianity says that God is not like the captain. He's not got things fixed against you. In fact, the scriptures say that he has your best intentions at heart. In the person and work of Jesus, he made himself a prisoner to set us free. By becoming, human, by becoming a human being and, and suffering and, and dying on the cross for our sins. And if you believe this, then you can trust him and his ways. As Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. When you trust God like this, you decide to obey what God commands simply because he commands it and to trust him with the results. This is what Proverbs 16.3 means. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. The word used here for, for commit uh, literally means in Hebrew to roll, like to roll a stone across a field. Uh, roll over to the Lord, whatever you do. In other words, turn over to the Lord, whatever you do. This doesn't mean asking God to bless the things that you've already decided to do. It means taking your hands off the steering wheel of your life and trusting God with it and with all of it. Obeying what he commands and, and submitting to what he sends you. When you enter into a relationship with God like this, it, it has two practical results. First, it means that you can take initiative. Proverbs and the rest of the Bible make clear that you are responsible for your decision making and, and your plans. God has given you direction, He's given you a brain. He's given you friends and, and family to talk to, and he expects us to use all these resources to cut through our fear of better options and to take steps of faith. There's no way around taking responsibility for yourself and your actions. But second, when you trust God, you can also have confidence that he's in control. Proverbs makes this abundantly clear. 16.9 in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Or, or 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. So you can take initiative, but you can also trust that God is in control. And this means that even when you fail, even when things don't work out as you'd hoped, you can trust that God's purposes 
for you are good, and they will be accomplished. This doesn't mean that you won't have to make hard choices. The pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer had an almost impossible decision to make in June of 1939. Knowing that war was about to break out between Germany and the Allies, Bonhoeffer was invited by Union Theological Seminary in New York to come as a visiting scholar, basically to escape Europe. And his friends urged him to take the position, and, and he did take it, and he came to New York. But almost immediately after stepping off the boat, Bonhoeffer regretted his decision. And he wrote to, to the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr uh, this. He said, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And so after spending only a week in the U.S., he got on the last steamer to cross the Atlantic back to Germany before the war began. And there he joined the underground resistance against the Nazis. And in 1943, he was arrested. And on April 9, 1945, Bonhoeffer was executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp just two weeks before the camp was liberated by the Allies. Was it wise for Bonhoeffer to return to Germany? Now, he believed that standing before the face of God, this was the only choice that he could make. A few months before his arrest in 1943, Bonhoeffer wrote an essay entitled, After Ten Years. Uh, in it, he reflects on lessons learned in the ten years in Germany since the Nazis had come to power. And he sent copies to three people, and one copy was kept under the roof beams of his parents' house. It was a dangerous document to have because it named what had arisen in Germany as evil. But Bonhoeffer says something surprising uh, in this essay. He says that there is something even more dangerous in a society than evil. He says it's folly. Listen to what he says. Folly is a more dangerous enemy to the good than evil. One can protest against evil. It can be unmasked and, if need be, prevented by force. Evil always carries the seeds of its own destruction as it makes people at the least uncomfortable. Against folly, we have no defense. Neither protests nor force can touch it. Reasoning is no use. Facts that contradict personal prejudices can simply be disbelieved. Indeed, the fool can counter by criticizing them. And if they are undeniable, they can just be pushed aside as trivial exceptions. One feels, in fact, when talking to the fool, that one is dealing not with the man himself, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like, which have taken hold of him. He is under a spell. He is blinded. His very nature is being misused and exploited. Having thus become a passive instrument, the fool will be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. What is the answer to, to folly like this? 
Bonhoeffer offers a word of hope. He says, At this point, it is quite clear, too, that folly can be overcome, not by instruction, but only by an act of liberation. The Bible's words that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom tell us that a person's inward liberation to live a responsible life before God is the only real cure for folly. Friends, we live in a world that is in desperate need of wisdom. Personally, socially, spiritually. And if, if you're a Christian here today, I believe that God has called you to be a channel of wisdom in the place where he has put you. Are you asking for the wisdom that you need? Are you seeking it? Bonhoeffer's right that, that the wisdom we need doesn't come from textbooks or teachers. I'm sorry, professors. Teachers have their place. But what we most deeply need is this inward liberation that Bonhoeffer talks about, this inner freedom that comes from the fear of the Lord. What does he mean by this? Let me just end with this. He means that when you live your life in relationship with God, it changes everything. You live quorum Deo, before the face of God. You no longer live for the praise of other people. So you can just let go of your fear of them, and, and you fear God alone. You don't even live for your own praise, so you can let go of your pride. You can submit to what God says and, and what he sends. You can listen to the advice of others. You can even invite them in to help you see your own flaws and failings. And you can make the hardest decisions, even when they are costly for you personally or, or professionally, because you know that God is in control. He will just direct your steps. His purposes will prevail. As the Apostle Paul says, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, we receive the words that we have heard today and we turn to you in faith. We seek your wisdom, so please help us. Make us humble. Help us to listen to your word and, and allow it to guide us in all the details of our lives. Give us open hearts to others to receive their instruction and their correction, uh, even when it's hard. May we set goals that are full of justice and peace and goodness for all. And would you give us courage to walk wisely in the places where you've put us, most of all to, to show your suffering, sacrificial love uh, to others. And we thank you that in all these things, that we have a confident trust in you, that you have provided what we, what we need and that you have promised uh, to be with us always. And so that's why we pray uh, with joy in Christ's name. Amen.